Hallelujah. Aren't you thankful for the love of God tonight? Thank you, Jesus. We can do a lot of things that, that God is not pleased with. We can do things that are against His Word. But you can't do anything to make Him not love you. You may be a lot of things, but you're not unlovable. The Lord loves you. And I'm telling you, He loves you when you don't know Him. He loves you when you don't care about Him. He loves you when you're in the middle of your mess. He loves you. He loves you when you're confused. He loves you when you're doubting. He loves you when you're angry. He loves you when you're just outright rebellious. He loves you. He may not like the things you're tied up in or the things you're thinking or doing, but He loves you because He gave His life for you. And I'm thankful for the love of God tonight. So thrilled to be here tonight, at least by way of social media tonight, that we can still stream and have service. We are uh, celebrating, actually, Wednesday the 29th will actually be our 13-year anniversary. And so uh, these are our anniversary services, and we are so blessed and honored to have friends watching us and friends here with us tonight uh, to, to just celebrate in this service and uh, two of our dearest friends on this earth that have meant so much to us and have been such an encouragement to us as we have pastored here since we have been they have been a part of our life um, I mentioned to Brother Green that until the Lord comes back just plan on the end of April being in Winterville because this is where I, I, I want him for our anniversary services. Brother Tim and Sister Lois Green are two tremendous people uh, to so many people, and uh, especially to the Walden family and to Restoration family. So we love you guys tonight. Brother Tim, would you come tonight and preach to us, minister to us tonight in Jesus' name. Let's give him a hand as he comes tonight. Praise the Lord. Counted a privilege to be a part of this 13th year anniversary with the Waldens, with Restoration. And we love and appreciate you very much and thankful that several years back God connected us closely and we've had the privilege to be with you for several years in a row now. I'm also giving honor to all of our South African crusade and um, members over the years and pastor alluded to this, that we would have had a celebration this year, this weekend, for our South African participants for several years, I think all the way back to 2013, 2014 or so. And we're missing you so very much, so glad you're online watching, and we pray that you will be blessed and touched by the message as you have already been blessed and touched by the music, the worship, the singing, and that we will get a chance to be with you again very soon. We greet you in Jesus' name. Giving high honor to Pastor Ed and First Lady Candy Walden, our great friends and the tremendous pastors of this church. Love and appreciate you very much. I am feeling a strong anointing upon my spirit today, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. I have learned over the past six weeks or so when most of my preaching has been from my living room and has gone online via Facebook Live or Zoom or whatever the case may be, that, uh, that I can feel the anointing to preach at home and that I can feel the anointing to minister at home. 
But there's nothing like being behind a sacred desk. A pulpit that has been dedicated to a place where the Word of God is preached. Nothing like being in a sanctuary that has been dedicated for people's lives to be changed and for worship and praise and prayer to happen. And I'm thankful today to be with just a handful of friends in this beautiful sanctuary behind this great sacred desk. And it's good to be speaking and ministering to those here, to those who are watching online. I want to say this, is that we need to have what this time has taught us. We need to have worship in our home. We need to have prayer in our home. We need to have the Word in our home. And we need an altar in our home. But the Word of God is very clear to us. We need it in our home. And we need also to be able to come together as a body of believers. Together with people of like precious faith. And have worship and praise and Word and altar together. Looking forward to that time where all of us will be able to have that privilege. I'm reading from the Gospel of John, and I will be reading from two chapters. Reading first from the second chapter of John, and then reading from the third chapter of John. I will read the last two or three verses of chapter 2, and go directly into chapter 3. You must understand that in the original writing, there was no separation of chapter and verse, that this came many years later with canonization and a division of the Scripture so that we could find certain verses and places. So this is a continual thought from chapter 2 into chapter 3, and I will read it as such. Begin reading now in John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I hope you caught what happened in the middle of this reading. Jesus is in Jerusalem. And many people are believing in His name because of the miracles which He did. And Jesus does not commit Himself to them because He knows mankind. And then in the very next chapter, He begins to commit the plan of the new birth message to Nicodemus, a man, indeed a man of the Pharisees, whom Jesus had the hardest times with because they loved the religiosity more than they did a personal relationship with their God. Strange dichotomy. I'm preaching today under strong anointing, commitment of God. Commitment of God. 
There is a horror story in Matthew chapter 7. Just at your personal time and devotion, you can read about it. But Jesus is basically speaking about the end of times. And he said there is coming a time when judgment will happen. And men and women will stand before me expecting to be invited into eternity of paradise and into heaven. And I will say to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. And in shock, they will say, what? We were church people. We went to church, if you will, every Sunday. We were faithful to the house of God. Not only that, we were a people of the name. We were a people who understood the power and the authority of the name of Jesus. We did mighty miracles in your name. And still he will speak to them and say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The emphasis in Matthew 7 is that it takes more than knowing about Jesus. It takes more than being a church individual. More than one that is religious or a good person. It even takes more than knowing Him. But it takes someone that He knows as well. You have to not only know Jesus, but you've got to position yourself in relationship with Him that He knows you too. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the ugly. And there is nothing that is hidden from Him. And you have made your life 100% available to Him. So we understand by the text we read and also Matthew 7, as many as plentiful places in the New Testament, that there are some that Jesus commits to, and there are some that He does not commit to. Many people committing to Him, but some He commits to, and some He does not commit to. It behooves us to understand who does God commit to. I have watched in the last few weeks as Facebook and social media has been flooded by preaching, good preaching. I have watched as services seemingly have multiplied and definitely they have multiplied online and powerful anointed preachers are preaching and thousands are sending likes and thousands are declaring that we have come online to watch your services and there seems to be a lot committing right now to God. But who is he committing to? It's very important that we understand that you can go through a life of religiosity in church and be committing to Him and not have the Lord commit to you. In our text, we find that there's these individuals in Jerusalem and Jesus in this feast day has been doing many miracles. And because of the miracles, there's great faith in these people's hearts. And they come to Him and they are wanting Him to commit to them. And whether as some historians or 
theologians believe they were wanting him to be a political figure in their religious movement. No separation of church and state in Israel, of course. But whether it was that historical idea or it was simply about mankind, and this is where I would lean, because the Scripture lets us know that Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. He knows the propensity, the tendency, and the habit of mankind. And it's simply this. Mankind's habit is to take the vehicle Religion. It's to take the operation of church that should bring us to a relationship with God. And we have a tendency as mankind to fall in love with the church more than the God of the church. We have more understanding of the religion of God and less of the God of the religion. We have a tendency to want things to be put in a formula so that we can just one, two, three, four, cross off the to-do list and know that we are making heaven our home. But this is man's propensity and this is why we have this dichotomy that we're finding here in our text. When we look in church history, you can only have to go a few hundred years from the time of the apostles who were writers of the gospel and the acts and the epistles and go just a few generations into the future and find out that what was considered the church called the apostle Simon Peter, their founding father, are sending out individuals to assassin people who do not confess Christianity. How do we get to that place where Christians who are following Christ are murdering people because of their unbelief? This is so far from the Word of God and principles of the Word of God. But you've got to understand the propensity of mankind is to get consumed with the religion of the God. And the religion of the God is what you begin to serve and to begin to love until you're so far from who God is and relationship of Him. This is the propensity. It's why you can drive down the streets of our cities in our towns here in the United States of America and see multiplied thousands of churches that confess to be Christians. And when you begin to get them together in one place, they cannot agree on anything. Doctrine, they cannot agree on. Salvation journey, they cannot agree on. Life separations and personal devotions they have little agreements on. How do we get to a place where Christians, supposedly Christians, all over the world do not believe the same thing? Are we not following the same Jesus Christ? The truth of the matter is, many have fallen in love the religion or the church or an organization or a group of individuals who call themselves Christians have bound themselves to leaders who supposedly and hopefully are leaders in the Christian movement. But if we are not continually bringing ourselves back to this question, 
Is my religion bringing me closer in relationship to Jesus? Is my church bringing me closer in relationship to Jesus? Does the church services that I'm a part of online or perhaps even when we congregate together in the future, is that bringing me closer in a relationship to Jesus? Or is it just appeasing my conscience that I am Christian as a person or Christian as an organization? Or that's my religiosity. And we formulize Things that are so valuable such as salvation. Can I say, nothing in Christendom is a formula. It is all relationship driven. And until you realize that everything we do in disciplines, everything we do in religiosity, rituals, and traditions should always be prioritized with does this bring me to closer to relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where I know him and he knows me. This is the propensity that Jesus is dealing with. And now we find him turning a quick corner in chapter 3 of John and committing to a Pharisee, a Pharisee, a Pharisee who lives out exactly what I have been speaking these past few moments that this was a sect of religious group that supposedly were serving and loving and worshiping God. But when God wrapped himself in flesh and walked among us in Jesus Christ, they had no clue who he was. Their God, and they did not know him. Who they worshiped, and they didn't recognize him who they had prayed to for generations and they kicked him out of their synagogues and their temples because they had no place for him. And this is the man that Jesus is now committing the new birth message that without a new birth, you cannot see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God. So all those he will not commit into in Jerusalem, and now he turns around and commits to Nicodemus, of all people, a Pharisee, a legalist of religiosity. What's the difference here? As we look at the story of Nicodemus, we find him doing something interesting in John 3. He's slipping out of his home by the cover of darkness, waiting till it is night when no one can see him, and then he begins to go to Jesus. The reason why he's slipping out at nighttime, because if his fellow preachers see him, they're going to take his license. That's right. They're going to kick him out of their organization. They're going to ostracize him. They're not going to fellowship with him. They will not allow him to be a part of their church programs and their church religiosity because the church of that time, the Pharisees of that time, had declared Jesus a heretic. And so Nicodemus is sneaking out so that he won't get thrown out of his church. And he's kneeling at the feet of Jesus. Now get the picture. Nicodemus, according to what we know of the Jewish religion time, he was probably 40s, perhaps 50 years of age. He has probably what we would consider 
doctorates behind his name, been to probably the greatest seminaries. He is one of the most sought-after speakers, perhaps, of his day, a leader of the Jews, a great man in his religiosity. And now he is kneeling, this 50-year-old man with all of his religious standings and religious accolades and his religious reputation. He kneels at the feet of a 30-year-old carpenter's son who's not been to seminary, who does not have a Bible college degree, who is not recognized by the greatest churches, even Christian, if I can say it that way, churches of his day. Nicodemus is kneeling. His words are very similar to the words of those in Jerusalem that Jesus did not commit himself to. He said, I know that your teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with. That's exactly what those in Jerusalem were saying. But the difference is this. Nicodemus is willing to walk away from every religiosity that he had. Every bit of his reputation was at stake. All of his church friends were at stake. Everything that he had, he was willing to walk away from it if he could only get to know Jesus a little more. He was willing to put aside everything he had if he could only get closer to Jesus. I can tell you this is still who Jesus commits to today. It's not those that go to the biggest buildings and have the greatest finances. It's not those that go to the smallest buildings or are the most quaint. It's not those that preach the hardest or preach the most liberal. It's those that are hungry to get close to Jesus. And if you want him to commit to you, you better make sure that everything you do in religiosity is bringing you to his feet. I want to know him today. I make this confession to you. That everywhere I go as God has opened up a global ministry for us. Everywhere I go across the world, I preach this Pentecostal experience of the new birth message. You must be born again or you cannot see and enter the kingdom of God. I preach it everywhere I go. I believe in this Pentecostal message. I also preach an apostolic demonstration everywhere I go. I pray, I hunger, I ask God, let the gifts of the Spirit operate. Let the supernatural move in every service. Let there be gifts and words of knowledge and words of wisdom, the prophetic. Let it operate with signs and miracles and wonders everywhere I go. This is my heartbeat of ministry. But I'm being honest with you today. As I tell you, more then I want to be Pentecostal. And more than I want to be apostolic, I want to be a true disciple. I want to be a true disciple of Christ. And it doesn't matter how many people pray through the Holy Ghost in my meetings. If they're not coming closer to Jesus Christ, what good is it? It doesn't matter how many apostolic demonstrations and how many healings we can boast in our ministry. If people are being brought closer to Jesus, what does it matter? What does it mean? I want to be a Christian. I want to make sure that everything I do and everything I'm part of brings me closer in relationship to the Lord. There is a story I make reference to now in 1 Samuel 25. Again, don't go there now. I'll tell you the story, but your personal devotion, please study. 
This is a time when the great prophet of Israel, Samuel, has passed away. And the king of Israel is still Saul. Although some years before, God told Samuel that my, I reject the kingdom and the anointing of Saul. And God sent Samuel to anoint David to be the next king of Israel. But now David, from a lad when he was anointed, has killed the giant, in the Philistine in the valley. And now he is still trying to qualify himself for the call and the anointing of the kingship which God has spoken to him. And Saul, who is unanointed, sits on the throne of Israel. Still. And David, who is anointed, is trying to be killed by the unanointed. Get the picture. The unanointed has position. And the anointed has no position. And the unanointed with position is trying to kill the anointed one who doesn't have the position yet so politically he can stay in power. This is still the habit of mankind. And we see this in the political world and even see it in the Christian political world. And so David, while he is hiding from King Saul, he's in the caves of Maon around the area of Carmel. And David is brought around him some 600 men. And these men are, of course, of outcast of society. But they recognize something in David. And because they recognize his anointing, they have attached themselves to this anointed man. And David is hiding so that King Saul will not kill him. And as he's hiding, he is making himself effective and powerful to his people, the Israelites. And in that area, there's a man called Nabal. And uh, if, if you have read the story of Nabal, you're probably thinking, oh, that evil man, because we know the end of the story. But when Nabal is introduced, this is how the Scripture introduces him. He was a great man. That Hebrew word means that he was loud, that he was mighty. That word great literally gives this picture that he could walk down the streets of the sidewalk of his town and people with deference would step off. That's Nabal, that powerful, that rich, that man of great reputation. And Nabal is also blessed of God, for he has 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he has maidservants, manservants, etc., He's from the house of Caleb. This is his heritage. Caleb was somewhere in his past, in his ancestry. Caleb, that great man of God who said, give me this mountain even at an elderly age because he believed God's promises even when his strength could not do it. This is his heritage. He's also blessed with a beautiful wife, Abigail. We see the wisdom in Abigail. So Nabal is blessed in many ways. He's a great man in that he's loud and mighty. And David begins to use his small army to take care of the flocks of Nabal. He makes sure that none of his men steals even a lamb. That no marauding thieves would come and steal from Nabal. And those in the surrounding area have the protection of David. 
David waits till appropriate time, and Nabal is now shearing his sheep and harvesting some goats. It's a time of blessing in Nabal's life. And David sends some of his servants to ask Nabal for a love offering. I've taken care of you. You have been blessed because of me. You've been protected, your sheep, your goats, your manservants, etc. And now I would ask a love offering. And when Nabal hears the request of the servants of David, he begins to be indignant. Why would I use my blessings to throw it away for some rebellious person like David? He begins to speak of David as one that is rebellious. He begins to align himself, get the picture, to King Saul. He is not about the anointing. He is not about the will of God. He's about the position and what gives him the most political influence. It's about what causes him to look like the bigger guy in the front of everybody in town. Begins to sigh. He even is so despairing as to speak about David's patriarch father and says, how could Jesse allow his rebel son to run around like he is doing. When the servants get back to David, they are in such dismay as they say, David, he doesn't know who you are. He has no clue of your anointing. He doesn't believe you're going to be the king of Israel. He doesn't know anything about you. He has absolutely no respect for you, and he would not give us anything, although we have worked so hard to protect him. David becomes enraged. He is so livid that he leaves only 200 fighting men in camp. And every other able-bodied man begins to march toward the house of Nabal. David's intent is to kill everything that Nabal has and owns and belongs to him. He will not leave one stone unturned. He will burn everything that he possesses and he will put to the sword everything that has blood. One of the servants... Of Nabal, here's the exchange of Nabal and David's servants, runs home to Abigail, that wise wife of Nabal, and begins to tell Abigail the story of what's happened. The servant says, Abigail, you know how your husband can be. Curlish. That's a word we don't use much anymore, but that word curlish speaks about how you deal with people. That he is harsh that he is cruel with people, that he'll step on somebody to get another rung of the ladder, that he's not important unless you have some kind of uh, influence for him, unless you can help him out. He has no use for you, no respect for you. Curlish. And the servant says, you know how your husband Nabal can be, Abigail? Curlish. And he begins to recite to her that the servants of David had asked for a love offering. And Nabal shamed him. He said, I'm a witness that David and his men have protected us for days and weeks and months now. No sheep, no goat has been lost. They have been faithful and Nabal has shamed them. What's more, Abigail, they are coming right now, David and 400 of his men, to destroy everything that Nabal is, has, and ever wants to be. Abigail begins to put together a love offering. In my estimation, you got to understand that David has, has hundreds of men. 
In my estimation, the love offering that Abigail puts together might have fed 50 men one meal. It's not a huge love token, but it's enough to show that she has respect and reverence. She puts this love token together and she sends it out to intercept David as he's coming to kill and to destroy everything of Nabal. And when David sees the love token coming from Nabal's house, it stops him. And as he's wondering what this is all about, Abigail comes following the love token on her beast burden. And falling off that beast, she kneels at the feet of David. Again, get the picture. This is a woman who is married to the most powerful man in the region. He's probably a man in his 40s or 50s, and she is married to him. And she is kneeling at the feet of David, a 30-year-old man that doesn't have a house, he doesn't have a home, he doesn't have a position, he has nothing except the anointing. And she kneels at his feet, and she says, David, my husband Nabal has sinned against you. He doesn't know who you are. He doesn't have respect for you. He doesn't have respect for your anointing. He doesn't believe that you're going to be the next king of Israel. He has sinned against you. So let me kneel before you now, David, and beg your forgiveness because I Know who you are. You're the anointed of the king of Israel. You will one day sit in the Jerusalem seat of power. You will be the king of all Israel. You are the anointed of God. God has chosen you. I know who you are, David. And David is so moved by the love token and more by the words of respect by Abigail repenting for Nabal that he gathers his men They take their love token, their love offering, and go back to their caves. Nabal, meanwhile, has decided to throw a feast. He has no idea what his wife, Abigail, has done. Indeed, she doesn't tell him what she did until after the feast is over. And now he is spending untold amounts of money. He talked about being a good steward of his blessing and not giving to David. And now he's throwing away so much money on a party that's all about making him seem richer and more important, building his reputation up. It's all about him. And so Abigail waits. And at the end of the feast, when everybody has gone home, she said, Nabal, you would not be alive today because David was coming to destroy everything you have and everything you are. But I sent out a love token. I apologized. When Nabal heard what Abigail did, it so broke him, the Bible said his heart turned to stone. His emotions, what made him a spiritual individual, became stone-like, hardened. And just a few short days after his heart was hardened, the Scripture lets us know that his flesh also died. David waits for the appropriate time of grieving, and then he sends for Abigail. And this is what he says, Abigail, because you believed in me when others didn't, because you saw my anointing when other people didn't believe in my anointing, when I didn't have position, I didn't have title, all I had was the anointing, you still knew me, you still believed in me. I want you to come now and covenant with me. 
Come join. Come marry me. And when I sit on the throne of Hebron, I sit on the throne of Jerusalem, you will be there with me. You will be with my anointing. You will be with my calling. You will be with my promise because you recognize my anointing even when others didn't. I've come today to preach to you online, the handful that are here in this building. But not only preach, I've come to minister. And I want to... I want to have the spirit of Abigail today. And if I can just get off my beast of burden and ask your forgiveness, I'm asking your forgiveness. I'm asking your forgiveness for three main things. First of all, I'm asking your forgiveness as a preacher. In our world today, if someone asks you what your career is, many times fly into different meetings, executives or salespeople sitting in the seat beside me on the plane will say, what do you do for a living? What's your career? And they will tell me their fancy title of this or that. And then when I began to tell them that I'm a preacher of the gospel, you can almost see a sneer. It's almost like a caustic look because there's very little in many areas of our world, very little respect for preachers. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Because we on social media see over and over and over the failure of those who have portrayed themselves as men of God and then turned out to be charlatans. We have in our past, those of us that are more than just a few years of age, remember the failures of a Jimmy Swaggart who, with tears pouring down his face, would preach to the millions about Calvary and then in the nighttime jump the walls and chase the prostitutes. We know the stories how the bakers were building only their financial kingdom all in the name of Christ. And we see the unglorified countless billions that are being spent in the sake of Christendom for personal comforts and reputations and marketing for ministries. Just wonder what Jesus would think about this. No doubt even personally, there's been some preacher, some church leader that has failed you. Backslid, or perhaps spoke words to you that were painful. But we need preachers. <laughs> Because this is the only way the gospel tells us that you cannot hear unless there be a preacher. It's still the preaching of the word that God has chosen to save them that are lost. You need to hear the word of God under the anointing of the spirit of God by a called individual of God. Speak his word because it's the only way to receive words of salvation. 
So for every preacher that has hurt you and done you wrong and failed you and every preacher that you have heard about that calls you to somehow be cynical about preachers, I'm asking you'll forget. Let that iniquity be upon me today so that I can beg your forgiveness. Please forgive preachers. Please forgive me representing preachers. Secondly, I'm staying on my knees today and I'm begging your forgiveness. I'm begging your forgiveness for organized religion, whatever dimension of organization that is, whether it's just a local assembly or it's a group of churches or a group of thousands of churches or thousands of groups of churches. I'm begging your forgiveness for religious organization. Don't get me wrong. I believe in organization, even religious organization. Because without organization, I can do very little by myself. But if I can join together with people of like precious faith, then the two of us together can change a city. And if this church will connect with that church, then a state or a region can be turned upside down. If we can come together all across a nation, then missionaries can be sent across the world. If we would pull our resources together through organization, we can change what God is trying to do or we can be a part of what God is trying to do in worldwide revival. So I'm not against organization. We need it. I believe in it. But I'll be honest with you, even this great organization that I'm a part of has made decisions that I am personally affected by. Decisions in the past few months that were based on reputation and not on the Word of God or what Jesus would do. And it has broken my heart And there are religions that organize together to be more politically correct than to be biblically correct. It's it's a burden in my spirit. I know that I'm opening myself up to be misunderstood and misspoken and misrepresented. But I'm coming with a heart to apologize for every religion that has done you wrong or every religion that is strayed from the purpose of the relationship with Jesus. I'm begging your forgiveness for organized religion. I'm staying on my knees for one more main thing. And it's for any abuse of power that has happened in your life. If some father has abused his position and hurt you as a child, if some mother, if some brother or some sister, if some friend or wife or husband, if some individual that you had given yourself to in love has broken and hurt your heart, I'm begging you today, Let that hurt, let that sin, let that mistake be upon me. And let me beg your forgiveness. This is why. Is that when Abigail speaks to David, she says, David, if you make choices right now because you're hurt, because someone who doesn't even believe in you said things about you, 
Because someone that has no respect for you, doesn't know your anointing, had no love for you. If you make decisions right now and destroy all of Nabal's house because of that, David, you're going to hurt your anointing in the future. When you go to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, there's going to be people that you're not going to be able to minister to. You're going to shorten your influence. You're going to make your ability to reach and to be effective for the kingdom much less if you make these choices now. And so I'm appealing to you today. If you cannot have the spirit of forgiveness and let yourself forgive me as proxy of these things in religion that have hurt you, You're going to hurt your ministry in the future. You're going to make it difficult in your walk with God in the future. You're going to make yourself so much smaller than what God intended because you're acting out of your hurt. And you're acting out of a situation that someone treated you some way that they did not know who you are. God has given me, I believe, Tremendous insight to who you are, Restoration Apostolic Church. I have a tremendous confidence in your powerful anointing. That God has put you specifically here to help turn University of Georgia upside down with revival. That the entire city of Winterville and Athens in this region will see a light shining in a dark place. That an outpouring of the Holy Ghost would flood churches, all kind of churches, all over our cities. That there'd be an outpouring in your living rooms and in your homes about pouring of the Holy Ghost as the Spirit of God. God has called you for this type of revival. The anointings that are upon your spirits and the callings that are upon your individual's lives have been confirmed over and over. You as young people and you as married and you as even elders, it's confirmed over and over that's who you are. I know who you are. I see your anointing as a calling of God upon you. So I plead with you. If somebody else in the religious organization doesn't know who you are, don't be offended. If somebody else treated you badly because they don't value you, don't don't be offended. Don't make a decision today based on what someone who doesn't know you and love you and believe in you and respect you did. Make a decision based on who you are and your anointing and how much God loves you and how you know Him and He knows you. The truth of the matter is this, that unless you can be like Nicodemus, And come to God in times of great hurt and great brokenness and confusion. Then you're only letting him know some of you. A part of you. But if when things are going good, you're giving him all the praise. And when things are going bad, you don't hide from him. But with a broken and a scarred spirit, you still give Him the praise. When things are going good, you're reaching out and testifying to your neighbor. 
And when pandemic is upon us and there's shelter in place, you're still finding some way to tell your testimony to somebody because that's just who you are. Good times, bad times, hurt, healing. It doesn't matter. That's who you are in your personal relationship. I'm thrilled today to be a part of celebrating 13 incredible years of anointed ministry. 13 incredible years of great and powerful church. And I'm feeling just a reminder in my spirit. If you can have church here in the tabernacle in the near future, awesome. But not just here, also where you are right now. Know Him and let Him know you. And it's time to get past everything that was said, everything that was done, everything that you have been carrying, some of you for a lifetime, every brokenness that happened to you in church, everything that was said by a leader, everything that was done that brought hurt and just realize whether it was intended or not, it doesn't matter. It's time to forgive. Because if you cannot forgive today, you're going to hinder your anointing, your ministry, your walk with God. And if you will, there's an anointing and a promise and a prophecy that will not be diminished, but you will walk to in fullness. Lord Jesus, I pray that people are on their knees in their living rooms. I pray, God, that people, under the sound of my voice, either taped or live or whatever the case may be, are not responding to a man, but let them respond to the pull of Jesus Christ in their life right now. Help us to get past all differences of denomination and Christianity and religiosity and just hear the Word of God today. Help us to obey the call of the Spirit and to find a place where we can kneel and clear everything up with Jesus who knows us and we know Him. Would you sing it, my sister? Shut in with God in a secret place.
Jesus 
to